This is The Guardian. Hallo, hier ist wieder Clark. Clark? Ist das nicht diese kostenlose App, mit der ich meine Versicherungen ganz einfach manage? Genau. Nach der Anmeldung kannst du deine bestehenden Verträge in die App hochladen und sie mit dem Bedarfscheck bewerten lassen. Wo es Optimierungsmöglichkeiten gibt, macht dir Clark alternative Vorschläge. Übrigens 100% unabhängig von einzelnen Versicherungsanbietern. Und bei Fragen stehen dir die Clark-Versicherungsexperten zur Verfügung. Ganz ohne Wartezeit. Wenn du dich jetzt mit dem Gutscheincode PODCAST30 alles großgeschrieben registrierst und deine Versicherungen in Clark hochlädst, erhältst du einen Amazon-Gutschein von bis zu 30 Euro. Rambling speeches are nothing new for Boris Johnson, but after a series of missteps, senior conservatives are urging him to get a grip. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Uh, with great local schools, uh, with fantastic uh, broadband, uh, uh, Earlier this week, Boris Johnson gave a scattergun speech to business leaders. He championed Peppa Pig World. But I loved it. Peppa Pig World is very much my kind of place. Seemed to compare himself to Moses and asked for forgiveness when he lost his place for what felt like an eternity. Forgive me. One reporter spoke for many of us watching when he asked the Prime Minister... Frankly, is everything OK? Later that night, it became clear everything was not OK when the government suffered a significant rebellion over its social care reform plan. It narrowly won, but each act of defiance chips away at Johnson's authority. The Prime Minister isn't the only one having a difficult week, or three. Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, has come under immense pressure to solve the issue of the increasing number of desperate people crossing the Channel in dangerously small boats to seek asylum. And isn't the fact, Mr Speaker, that another Cabinet Minister has had to be brought in evidence of the fact that the Home Secretary has lost control of this dangerous situation? So can Patel's big policy promises appease angry backbenchers? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, to wrap up the latest news from Westminster, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee. Polly, it's lovely to have you on. There's lots to get through, but let's perhaps first of all look at this controversial amendment to the Health and Social Care Bill this week that, that gave us more details about how the government's cap for social care will work. Um, quite a few Tory MPs didn't like it very much, did they? Extraordinary how many abstained and actual a lot of real rebels too. After all, they had all signed up to a manifesto with a commitment in it that nobody would have to sell their house to pay for their care. So I think there was a very strong feeling about it. And it's understandable because what they produced in the end was something that looks very like the poll tax. It's a flat tax. Same for everybody in effect. That's how it works out. Whether you've got uh, you know a million pound house or a house that's only worth 100,000. And of course, the irony being that it hits the north much harder than the south. So there were a lot of reasons for them to be very upset about this. And the particular change was about what counts towards this £86,000 
lifetime cap on care costs, wasn't it? So if you're getting means tested support from your local authority or from the government, that doesn't count towards the cap, does it? And so you might reach that £86,000 limit more slowly if you've got fewer assets. But, you know, if you if you have a, a long care journey, as, the, as they call it, you're still going to pay the same, aren't you? Yes, very unfair, because these are, by definition, people who are poorer who are getting some support. So they're destined to get their assets eaten up an awful lot quicker. And what's going on here, Polly? Why are these changes being made, do you think? I mean, it's, it, the government would say it's more generous than what we have in place now because it will it will protect people from having to pay more than that 86000 But it's quite a bit less generous than, than the cap as first proposed 10 years ago. Well, it's a fairly piffling sum of money these days, £900 million. Uh, it's chicken feed, given the sums of money that are being thrown about all over the place or have been during COVID, so that it sounds like a high political price to pay for what in treasury terms in fact is a relatively small sum of money and so is it is it the treasury behind this do you think polly is there's a bit of a sense at westminster i think that rishi sunak's you know quite irritated that he's had to splurge quite a lot of money recently and uh, at boris johnson's behest and is perhaps trying to sort of claw back some small victories in in other places well it's interesting because rishi sunak air presumptive according to a lot of people uh, wants to put himself forward as, as a traditional low tax low spend tory to appeal to a certain tranche of those backbenchers but i think he's making as bad a miscalculation politically for his own interests as Boris Johnson is because I think you know this rebellion and a lot of the anger on the backbenches is about the way Rishi Sunak has cracked the whip and uh, seems to be creating a lot of the policies that are very unpopular. And we had similar disquiet didn't we from some of the same MPs, some of some of those northern MPs Red Wall MPs about the integrated rail plan, this plan for rail in the north which again some are blaming Rishi Sunak for, for that being significantly less generous than, than sort of previous promises had suggested. Yes that's a safe rather more money but there's certainly a strong sense that Leeds Bradford have been utterly betrayed that by uh, losing the eastern leg of HS2 it's a betrayal of a large chunk of the north and uh, you know those those new MPs who are you know not seasoned some of them may not even really be all that Tory who maybe thought they were never going to win those seats have a lot less sense of we must obey the whip whatever happens and probably not much sense they're going to be promoted because there's an awful lot of them so uh, again a big serious political miscalculation on Rishi Sunak's part as well as on Boris Johnson's. And Polly what does this mean for Boris Johnson's authority we had 18 Conservatives voting against the government on the social care um, amendment 68 abstaining I mean it's it's quite a rebellious parliament this isn't it considering that the, the Conservatives have a you know just short of an 80 seat majority and you would expect a government with that majority not to have to worry too much about winning over its MPs. You would but traditionally uh, that quite often happens when there's a very large majority people feel more relaxed and it's true poor John Major was managing on a knife edge with uh, you know relatively few rebels could upend his legislation but I think there is a sense of well we're the masters now anyway and Labour doesn't look as if it's going anywhere they say so I think they're a lot less afraid and of course some of them are very afraid of losing seats that have quite small majorities those northern seats they're also pretty terrified of Nigel Farage who you know gnashes his teeth in the background says he might come back into politics and that frightens them too attacks on the left and attacks on the right. 
Mm, and Polly, that vote on Monday evening came after one of the more bizarre speeches Boris Johnson has given. I know there are quite a few to choose from, aren't there? But, but you know, it's not a great sign when his spokesman had to come out yesterday and, and categorically say the Prime Minister is not unwell and has not lost his grip. You know, what, what, what's going on there? I don't think he ever had grip. I mean, take back control was never control of Boris Johnson or Boris Johnson's control of himself either. It was an extraordinary speech because he does make rambling speeches, but he's always full of self-confidence where you don't feel he's ever lost for words. So the fact he lost his place, you would have expected him just to bat on more Peppa Pig or whatever. Instead, what we got was the most extraordinary thing I think anybody's ever heard fallen from his lips. Three times he said, forgive me, forgive me, as he fumbled with his papers. He has never, ever, I think, asked anyone to forgive him ever. <laughs> and, you know, did you look at him and think, you know, this was a prime minister who's, who's sort of not at the height of his powers? Or is it just that because we're sort of framing it with the events of the last three weeks, the Owen Patterson scandal, and we, you know, we know backbenchers are already sort of furious about him and so on, you know, do, do we sort of see it differently because of what's happened in recent times? I think we do. I think that there's been such a concatenation of disasters in, in a very short time, starting with the Owen Patterson scandal, that we look at him with a, perhaps a sharper critical eye. Of course, some of the Tory columnists have been bringing to his defence, saying, but this is what people love about him. He's not traditional, he's not conventional. You know, he talks about Peppa Pig. People know about Peppa Pig. They don't want to hear a dry speech basically written by civil servants. So, I mean, maybe the charm is still there. I mean, his personal ratings have fallen considerably. But, uh, you know, don't underestimate the charm of Boris Johnson. It may escape some of us, but it plainly does well with a lot of voters. Yeah. And Polly, we're starting to read in some of the papers this morning. I mean, it was a bit of a flashback, I, I felt, to the sort of 2017, 2019 parliament. But, you know, some MPs are apparently marching around saying they've put in no confidence letters to Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 Committee of Conservative Backbenches. Do you put much weight on the idea that Boris Johnson's party could oik him out before the next general election? No, I don't think so. I think he'd have to, uh, he himself and the party, fall much further behind Labour for a very long time before they really lose their nerve. They still think he's their winner. It isn't clear. And Rishi Sunak has fallen out of the sky as well in terms of his personal ratings among his party members, Conservative Home Shows. So it's not clear who they would really want instead. Liz Truss? Well, maybe. But I think that's um, distant talk. I think it's angry MPs making a noise and they're quite right to you know they've been made to vote for appalling things that are, go against the manifesto commitment you think you know, in the manifesto it was triple lock for pensions broken it was you know HS2 and trains for the north broken time and social care save your house broken so I think they have every reason to be very angry that what they've stood up for they've now been made to vote against but you're right, it's a, it's a different thing to think that you're going to sort of stick someone in instead. And, and um, I think the polling evidence shows that those voters who switched from Labour to the Conservatives in 2019, often it was Boris Johnson that was attracting them rather than the sort of Conservative brand. So it's quite unclear, I think, what quite what would happen if you if you put someone else, as you say, Liz, Liz Truss, perhaps, or, or Rishi Sunak or whoever else uh, up there. But it's it's definitely that, that simmering discontent is definitely one to watch. Polly, just a quick one before I let you go. Um, Labour MP Stella Creasy tweeted on Tuesday that, that she'd taken part in a Westminster Hall debate on Tuesday and she'd had her three-month-old baby uh, sort of strapped to her front and she'd had a letter from the House of Commons authorities to say, you know, it's, it's been brought to our attention that you were in the chamber with a child and just to remind you the 
the rules don't allow it. What do you make of that? It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It shows the extent to which Parliament is still such a male place. You know, there's quite a lot of disgust for women looking pregnant, let alone having babies as a kind of old-fashioned male yuck factor. Why don't they all go home and, uh, and and keep quiet and don't show their physical excrescences? And a baby is part of that, particularly a breastfeeding baby. This was Westminster Hall debate. It wasn't even in the Commons Chamber itself. She's quite right to make a big noise about it. It's absurd. Most of these men have had babies. Uh, they should be bringing them in too. <laughs> and of course, there's no proper maternity cover, is there? So I'm not quite sure what else they're expecting her to, her to do where that where quite where that baby is supposed to be. But um, Stella Creasy has a, a reputation for um, winning battles, doesn't she? So I, I imagine she's not going to take it lying down. Nope, I think she'll fight hard on this one and quite right too. Uh, there's still a long way to go in all sorts of elements of the, uh, of the House of Commons and how it behaves. It's ours. And certainly what she's fought for is to be able to job share when you're off on maternity leave, which is a very good idea, uh, going nowhere at the moment. Polly Toynbee, thank you very much. Thank you. After the break, can Pretty Patel stem the tide of small boats crossing the channel? We'll be right back. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian. Now it has been a tough week for the Home Office and the Home Secretary Pretty Patel. A new damning cross-party report showed that just 5% of Windrush victims have received compensation. This comes on top of pressure she was already facing over her failed attempts to stop refugees crossing the channel in small boats. Earlier this month, the number of people who had to be rescued reached over a 1,000 on a single day. Experts have long called for safer routes, but she's now also under increasing pressure from within her own party. Where are those big promises on taking back control? The Guardian's deputy political editor, Rowena Mason, spoke with Rajiv Sayal, the Guardian's home affairs editor, and Sunda Katwala, director of the think tank British Future. Rajiv, Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary and darling of the Conservative Party's grassroots, she's not had a good week, has she? Can you explain why she's coming under increasing pressure? You could actually put it down to the weather, because the, the weather in the Channel has been incredibly calm which has upped the numbers coming over. So at the moment, what we're seeing is, despite the fact that we're in November, we're seeing numbers of 1,000 people arriving a day in dinghies and small boats. And uh, this to the backbenchers, many of whom campaigned on Brexit, campaigned specifically on the issue of controlling Britain's borders during the last election, this is really hurting them and they are getting in an awful lot of incoming emails and angry messages from their constituents asking what is going on. And what about the idea, Sundar, that this is a crisis? On the one hand, many on the left will not like the idea that um, these people coming over and wanting to claim asylum are being scapegoated or, or, or portrayed as unwanted. But on the other hand, it is incredibly dangerous and, and perilous what they're doing in crossing over the ocean. And um, some people have sadly lost their lives. That's right. Civic society groups are making uh, the point that we're not seeing a rise in the number of asylum claims. We're seeing people claiming asylum in similar numbers coming by a different route. But this is much more dangerous as well as much more visible. So it's nobody's idea 
of what a well-managed asylum and refugee system looks like. And so actually there's a shared interest, despite all of their differences, between the government and those of us who want better refugee protection in this country, that we have to manage this better and be seen to manage this better because you do need public confidence that you can make asylum and refugee protection work, as obviously we've been doing for decades and decades in this country since we signed the Refugee Convention you know, in the 1950s. Rajiv, let's look a little bit closer at this issue that Pretty Patel has been grappling with. Do we understand exactly why the numbers have increased? You've talked about the weather, but what about the, the bigger picture about why more people are coming across the channel rather than different types of routes for claiming asylum in the UK? In recent years, people seeking asylum in Britain would have taken other routes to get here. Uh, many of them would have flown over. Flights have been cancelled because of the pandemic. And so you've got an increasing number of people heading for the border. But part of the problem has also been that the um, government has closed down several other routes that people would have taken in the past, schemes that people could have applied for. And as a result, many refugees now feel that the only way that they can seek refuge in this country is by arriving on the shores via a boat. So essentially this is partly a problem of Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson's own making, is that fair? Yes, and it's also a problem about expectations. Pretty Patel has said 11 times now, over, since she came into office in 2019, that she is going to solve the crisis, that she's going to make the uh, route via boats unviable and at every turn, the numbers have gone up. She seems to have fallen into Boris Johnson's habit of over-promising and under-delivering. For that reason, it is her fault. But you also have to look at the fact that uh, virtually every country with a seaboard in Europe is experiencing the same problems. So it, it's not just Britain that's experiencing this. And... Sunder, Patel has previously said that 70% of the individuals who have come to the UK via small boats are single men who are effectively economic migrants and that they are not genuine asylum seekers. What is the evidence for that claim? And do we know what percentage of those arriving here are granted refugee status? Yes, she, she doesn't have a basis for that. Um, the Refugee Council has done an analysis of the countries that the, the people arriving on boats are mostly coming from. And in all cases, the acceptance rate for asylum is well above average, is well above 50% and will tend to be two thirds to 70% on appeal. So it's more accurate, I think, on the information we've got to say 70% are people the UK government considers genuine refugees rather than 70% are economic migrants. I think she seems to be saying if they're single men, they must be economic migrants. That 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 doesn't follow if you're somebody um, from Afghanistan who's got a reasonable fear of persecution. The fact that you're a single man doesn't prove that you're not a refugee. Rajiv, does that give us a little bit of a clue as to why the Home Office might be covering up some of its own research into why refugees and asylum seekers are travelling to the UK? I think that there's been demands for an awful lot of data from the Home Office and they, they're not handing it out. And very basic stuff, such as, for example, the number of people who've died in the channel, you can't get those figures out of them. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're right to point that out. They're, they are being incredibly reticent. And what about reducing some of these measures that, that Pretty Patel is suggesting for 
trying to turn away people coming across in small boats. Some of them are quite controversial, aren't they? This idea of offshoring, as they term it, offshoring of people seeking asylum and this mooted wave machine that was yeah. going to try and turn people back in the channel. Yes, the uh, the, the famous uh, wave machine, which no one has ever seen or heard of. Um, there have been a number of ideas. One of them, which they say they are now prepared for, is the pushback of boats. But um, even the Home Office's own legal advice says that if they do such a thing, and they can only do that in incredibly rare circumstances, they would still only have a less than 30% chance of winning a case, according to their own uh, information. They've also put forward ideas, uh, as you mentioned, of offshoring. The idea is that they would be put on boats or planes and flown to an island. Uh, They've also briefed on two occasions now that they're in talks with the Albanian government, but the Albanian Prime Minister has got on national TV to deny that claim so it's it's all getting quite desperate because they they can see that this is really damaging them i think the problem is the government makes its challenge worse with these exciting headline ideas that aren't going to happen in 12 or 18 months time it doesn't get you very far you've overpromised and underdelivered offshoring no country wants to do it and it would be fantastically expensive um the sensible solutions of manageability and reducing the profile of this issue by managing it better are a bit more boring but that's what would make a difference if you invested in the asylum systems we went back to making decisions within six months you'd be much better placed actually then to have a chance of voluntary returns or deals with governments to return people whose cases are turned down if you work out how people make their claim in france and britain if, if the french and british governments are, are falling out with each other in a blame game this is going to continue they're going to have to work out how to cooperate taking this out of the headlines is the answer i think for the government but at the moment i think because they're feeling panicked by the political pressure they're talking it up with things that they're not going to do and what about the nationality and borders bill that's going through the commons at the moment rajiv pretty patel's been saying this would help solve the problem but others will say that it would break international maritime law and the 1951 refugee convention and would be subject to legal challenge what are the elements of the bill that are so controversial Parts of the bill would limit the amount of um, money that um, people receive once they enter Britain. And there there are also parts of the bill that would limit the amount of legal support that people would receive. So a group of lawyers um, have looked at this, um, human rights barristers, and, and believe that there are at least 10 different very strong cases that they would have for a judicial review once once this um, comes into law. So I could see this dragging out through the courts for some time if it does get onto the statute books. And let's look at Priti Patel herself. We've talked about um, how she has pushed this issue for many months. But now with the, the backbench anger and Boris Johnson getting frustrated and losing patience with her, She's fighting for her job, really, isn't she, Rajiv? Um, And she's coming under immense pressure from all wings of the party to try and get this sorted. She is. And and I think um, there there are also murmurings that uh, people in number 10 are um, briefing against her and also that people in number 10 may have set her up for this position. So, So would 
the Conservative Party solve the situation if they get her head on a plate? I'm not sure if they would, because whoever gets into into that position is going to be facing the same set of circumstances. And the other problem that I think that um, they face is, is the fact that there's a French election and it, it's in the interests of Macron's party to play up its um, tensions with the British in order to fight off uh, challenges from the far right. Looking ahead to the general election, um, which could be in 2024, Cinder, how do you see this evolving between now and then um, the scapegoating of migrants has long been an election strategy of of those on the hard right what do you make of this argument that's been made by some Tories that the issue could actually lead to the creation of a new right-wing political party similar to Nigel Farage's UKIP that caused such problems for the Conservatives in the past? I have a slightly counterintuitive I think instinct about where this will end up. I think the government won't want to talk about asylum and refugee issues and channel crossings at the general election, because at the moment they're saying to the Labour Party, well, you're not backing our bill. If you're keen on this issue, why aren't you backing our bill? But the Labour Party is saying your bill won't work. If they pass the bill and they still got the problem, actually having new reasons the Labour Party is soft won't particularly work for this government. So I think it will get louder, but they might actually realise it's not in their interests actually to make this a political issue if it's still a problem and they haven't dealt with it. Rajiv, Sundar, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rowena. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Frieden speaks to the former communications director for the GOP, Tara Setmeyer, about the backlash faced by 13 Republicans who voted in favour of Biden's infrastructure bill. But for now, I want to thank our guests Polly Toynbee, Rowena Mason, Sundar Katwala and Rajiv Sayal. The producer was Yolene Goffan. I'm Heather Stewart. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.